Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 22. I'm Joshua. And I'm Mike. And uh, some news in M&T world. Uh, we have just recently launched our M&T grant program, which we're really excited about. Mm. Um, it is uh, basically every calendar year, uh, starting in 2021, we are going to be offering two research grants to um, successful applicants who mail in their applications to us, um, where they uh, detail some pre-industrial research angle that they would like to pursue. Um, Each of these grants will be uh, worth up to uh, $3,000, depending on the research. Yeah, the scope of the research. Yeah, some some people might need to do some traveling or go to different institutions, meet with different people. And um, basically, uh, each researcher will have a fixed amount of time to do the work, probably, you know, a year or something like that. Mm -hmm. And after that, they will uh, write an essay uh, detailing the research and their conclusions and findings, and uh, we will be publishing that with uh, all their photos uh, in a future issue of the magazine. Yeah, uh, we are really excited about this program. Yeah, we we just had so many people uh, over the years tell us about some interesting. Uh, furniture they found or an institution or something and they just say, oh i'd love to learn more about this and i just i can't really take the time to do it and we've just heard that over and over and i felt that too when i was researching um jonathan fisher's furniture making i the location the traveling wasn't so much the issue being able to go study the objects because they are uh, local to me but being able to take all that time out of my work life you know right. trying to put food on the table to feed my kids and how do I set that time aside in my life to do research and so it was really really hard to, to find that time and I applied to, to get uh, two different grants from the Early American Industries Association and Society of American Period Furniture Makers and those grants were very helpful it was mm. super helpful to be able to say okay here are some funds I can do some research I can do this work and that can actually come to fruition so we want to be able to do that for other people too yeah to uh to pay that forward as it were and yeah see all these cool projects that we've heard the potential and say well let's let's do it let's get these things in print so yeah yeah we're excited and uh so if you or someone you know uh has some idea sitting in your closet that you have wanted to pursue or have started pursuing um uh, let us know. Uh, we have a page on our website about the grant, and there you can find and download the application. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, for people who are interested in supporting this program financially, we have a page where you can donate. Um, and we're going to, everyone who donates will be um, added to an email list where they will get regular updates on uh, the research going on. And also, they'll get a special uh, wax sealed trade card. Uh, basically denoting that year's research and their support of it. So um, we think it's a great program. I think it's going to be a good opportunity to uh, hear from some new people about some new and uh, interesting research. So, Well, and, and we've also gotten emails about that too. People say, just out of the blue saying, you guys should start a foundation because yeah. I want to donate to fund this research from happening. Yeah. Like, wow, yeah, well, that's well, an interesting that's, idea. Yeah. yeah. Huh. So okay, so this here it is. We made is one. <laughs> the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're we're really excited about this. Uh, so stay tuned for more about this as it unfolds. We've just opened up the program for applications, so any day yeah. now the mailbox will start filling up. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's that. Um, the other uh, piece of news um, is not as exciting. It's uh, quite disappointing, actually. Um, our good friend Phil Lowe, a, a woodworking legend, uh, recently just mm-hmm. passed away. Um, it's a, a tragic thing to, to read about. We did know that Phil uh, was not doing well. He uh, notified us that he was closing his school. Um, 
but uh, it's just it's it's hard to take just because Phil was so supportive of our work in the beginning. Yeah. Um, I actually spent some time with him uh, early on uh, for issue one. I interviewed him and asked him about researching historic furniture, uh, how he learned about his his uh, his approach to work, where he learned it from, and and that spending all this time studying the objects themselves was so. Uh, it, it was what opened up his his understanding. So um, we are mourning uh, the loss of our good friend Phil. I always loved seeing him at the Lee Nielsen Open House yeah. and other events. He's just so one of the sweetest people, um, yeah. very uh, warm and, and embracing of, of everybody. So uh, we, we miss you, Phil. Yeah. And uh, so we uh, wanted to announce that. We also wanted to include here on our podcast – uh, a few minutes of an excerpt uh, from that that interview I did with Phil in 2015. Phil was talking about um, when he was learning how to uh, how to build furniture uh, in in a pre-industrial way, trying to understand antique furniture and how it was made. Um, his mentor and, and and the objects themselves. The way that he he learned was by looking close at the tool marks, looking at the construction. And so we thought that we would share a, a snippet of that interview here with you. How did you learn how they did this? Well, I guess, you know, it, uh, it was always curiosity. Um, you know, I was, when I was a student and when I was working with the old timer that I had, he was always introducing myself and the students to, uh, you know, furniture history. And he would, you know, go on and talk about, you know, certain procedures that they would use, say, for instance, in the Pilgrim furniture, the tools that they would be using, you know, froze and wedges and, you know, axes and, you know, uh, you know, spoke, uh, draw knives and so forth to help shape the pieces. Mm -hmm. And uh, he sort of wove a, sort of, a, I guess, a, uh, you know, a, a, I don't know what you call it, a romanticized sort of ideal of what those okay, those sure. things you know and um, so you know he would always bring us to the uh, one of the antique shows the big antique shows in Boston and you know we'd walk around and we'd look at this great furniture and the price tags on it and you know it, it just you know he just knew how to stimulate that curiosity about well what makes this so valuable what makes this you know and I, it was always like well how did they do it you know was my always you know I was always thinking wow how did they do this or how did they do that and uh, you know he, and he would always say by hand you know <laughs> <laughs> because that's how it was done uh, you know or he would describe a treadle lathe or a, a, a great wheel lathe to to you and um, you know fortunately I've had the, tr the opportunity to try both of those and mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing what they could do with you know um, that type of technology and that's you know, I think those are the things that really um, sort of has sort of made me really look at furniture closely. And, you know, I look at even something made, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, or 90 years ago as a different stage of furniture making. And, you know, the introduction of machines and how they would cut certain shapes into things and how those cutters will leave certain, you know, ways that the cutter ends the cut mm -hmm. you know and you look at how that might have been done before with a hand tool and you know how you can compare them and things like that it's just a you know curiosity mm -hmm. that i've always had about how did they do it sure and uh you know and honestly the 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 um the genealogy that go went along with it didn't really interest me that much you know yeah. it was more the, the you know the uh, the approach of the furniture maker and what he was up against in order to produce some of the stuff that just was astounding to me, especially yeah. with just hand tools. So mm -hmm. it just, you know, goes on and on, you know. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so when you were going, visiting all these museums and seeing all these pieces back to back and you were presumably looking pretty close and trying to examine as much as you could, mm -hmm. um, could you describe maybe one moment you remember where some you had sort of an epiphany, like, oh, that answers this question I've had. 
Can you think of one? Well, I think it, that's, it's continu it continuously happens because, okay. <laughs> you know, as you go and you look at different, you know, uh, different pieces, they, they require different skill sets. And, uh, you know, you look at the early Pilgrim-style pieces or Jacobean pieces that, um, you know, again, the tools that they use to, to make those, you know, though, you know, when I learned about that, it was like, wow, you know, this is crazy, you know, these guys out splitting these, you know, chunks of wood out of these logs to make this simple chest with, and then they carved the panels or, and then you go all the way into the federal period and you look at, you know, some guy that has this notion or understanding of how to take all these thin pieces of wood and glue them together and cut them in one direction mm -hmm. and then glue them back together in another direction and then cut them again and you know to make bandings and so forth it's just like you know it's always that curiosity of looking at something and say wow how did they do that you know is, yeah. did they you know were they using uh, you know you were always questioning did they use a jig or were they did you know or were they trying to cut this stuff by hand or you look at a you know a piece of carving it's just like um, some of it's just astounds me that somebody has that gift to be able to see you know something like that in in three dimensions and but yet there's a methodical way of going about excavating the material that you don't want before you get to the details and um, you know it's always those curiosities to want to be able to look and find other people that you know you can see how they do it and approach it and so yeah. on so yeah so in uh, along those lines um, and uh, along the lines of what you learned from Phil and early on about the mission of M&T uh, obviously it's been built around uh, period furniture and uh, understanding it and taking a closer look at it um, so let's talk about that today yeah uh, so yeah if in a very practical way uh, what kind of tools are essential for examining period furniture? Um, well, you know, I think a lot of people start by looking at furniture and they think all I need is a pair of eyeballs. Just take a look and stand back and look close or, you know, look at it and kind of walk around it and I should be able to discern some things. And um, I think that there are a lot of other things you can do to be able to uh, get more information that's really useful in the shop if you're recreating or if you're making your own stuff uh, understanding how this thing was made as, as Phil was talking about um, and so some of them really depends on the the situation this could be something maybe you or a family member own or it could be sitting in an antique shop or it could be in a very prestigious institution that has you know big insurance policies yeah. on all of their artifacts and so you you have to approach it differently uh, for sure so in a museum like that if you are granted access and they are the curator is there with you and the staff is guiding you and examining you're going to be wearing gloves you're going to have all these rules that you have to be very respectful of um, but if you're in if it's your piece or a piece at an antique shop you don't need gloves, probably. Um, but at least I think the first most basic thing I would say in any of those situations is you're going to want a good, solid flashlight, a big, big light. Um, and the light that I like to use is um, it's a battery powered uh, LED light. It has a dimmer on it. And uh, for those of you who are curious, the it's it's very inexpensive. It's the brand is uh, newer. N-E-E-W-E-R, and the model number is CN160, CN160. And it's just a cheap uh, LED light with a dimmer on it, but it's really helpful to be able to uh, get raking light on the surfaces and see all the nooks and crannies because, frankly, it's easy to miss a ton of stuff. And the flashlight is, like, number one. you got to have a good light. Yeah, and this one's valuable because it's it's a diffused light. It's not sure. like projecting a beam. Um, it has a filter that slides on over the LEDs that um, that really uh, kind of adds that that cloudy uh, effect to the light, and that really allows it to um, to spread out and to highlight those details. 
mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, the other thing that uh, we use and make use of is the the black light. Um, and of course, you know, black lights are just fun to have if you're having like a Halloween party or something, you know, and they make your teeth look really cool. Or if you have a poster with mushrooms all over it. Yeah. To be all yeah, it can <laughs> glow. <laughs> but uh, what are the, what are the values of using a black light or ultraviolet light? Um, well, you know, it's if you look up, uh, you know, black light flashlight or something on online, you try to find that. What you'll see is they're marketed for scorpions for finding scorpions. Oh. And uh, the reason that is is because scorpions fluoresce, and in a lot of other things, fluoresce differently. Meaning, when you shine a black light on them, the the light, the color that they emit, they basically are glowing green. So, so this black light is like this purplish color, and you shine it all over your carpet, and it's all just <laughs> it's purple. And then you see a neon green scorpion running at your feet. So it's, that is it's useful. Valuable. Yeah, but. So what that means is um, all different, all solids fluoresce different colors. Um, and so if you're, say you have an, like an oil finish on a piece of wood and you shine a black light on it, it's all going to be just dark purple, you know, maybe dark blue, kind of black, it's just real kind of nothing stands out. And then you uh, shine it on a glue block and you see right around the glue block, this bright green or white from all the hide glue. Mm. Also, lacquer finishes fluoresce like a, a bright blue. Shellacs are bright orange. And as they fade and they deteriorate, they turn bright green. Mm-hmm. So you can start to see things you didn't see before. And that's useful when you're looking for repairs. If you're standing back and there's a, a whole side of a chest that looks flawless, totally perfect, untouched, and you shine a black light, and you'll see all these little dots of shellac repairs and you go oh yeah sure enough there's a repair i didn't see that hmm. before so black lights just give you a whole nother vantage point on the object to see things you didn't see before yeah yeah they're they're really cool and you can find scorpions hiding in the backs of the drawers if they're there yeah if you had a scorpion in the back of your drawer you would want to know yeah oh for sure um, I, I remember when I started working with you doing furniture and one of the first things I, I found kind of funny is that your van was always full of blankets. And I was like, why does he have all these blankets? And then of course, you know, anytime we'd move something, you'd, you'd know which blanket you wanted and you'd lay it out and pat it out and then we'd put the piece of furniture in and then you'd lay a blanket over it and very carefully wrap it. And uh, so moving blankets are very valuable for moving furniture yeah for sure for, for moving and even like let's say you have a, a chest of drawers and you want to lay it on its back and look on the inside don't yep. just lay Drop it back it on, on the concrete the, yeah well on the con- but or on the wooden floor or whatever yeah um it really is a good idea to have a nice thick blanket down so you can gently set it down on its back and you can set the drawers on the blanket um and that way you're not just pitching them off to the side so yeah. And that's especially important if it's, you know, a museum object. You'd never want to do that to someone else's precious uh, piece. But if it's yours, you could, you know, set it on a clean carpet or something. Right. But yeah, uh, you just want to be respectful of the context there. Um, but I mean, the other obvious thing is, of course, uh, a tape measure, a six inch rule, uh, dial calipers, stuff like that would be uh, helpful to determine not only um, the thickness of the top, say it's three quarters of an inch, that might be useful. However, if you measure it all around the edge of the top, you'll see how much it varies in thickness. And you'd yeah. say, oh, wow, that's interesting. So there are things like that that you can pick up by by um, measuring closely. But I will say the caution with that is all of those have metal edges. So the little hook on the end of the tape measure, the the dial calipers, even the six inch rule, all that is metal on potentially valuable historic surface. Right. So don't do that. So put um, what I've done is I've put um, like blue painter's tape on all of the metal edges. So when you put the painter's tape on, that's that's what's touching the the surface and not the metal itself. So that's the, the caveat to those. Right. Yep. And then, of course, a camera um, without a flash. Flashes destroy detail. Yep. Don't use a flash. 
um, use the raking light from uh, handheld light, uh, which oftentimes leaves you in a strange position, especially if you're flying solo, trying to take pictures of things while holding a light in good position. Yeah. Um, but that is the combination to use for taking photographs, raking light and uh, a camera. Um, <clears throat> cameras, you know, you can document every joint, every detail, and then you can go through and look back at your photos later, uh, think about it and ponder what's going on in different places and different joints. And Especially if you can't see the object again. Right. If you make an appointment to go examine this thing, or, you know, and, and you look as close as you can, you take notes or whatever, and you got it all in your head, and then you go home and you, you think on it, and you go, How now wait, that? I wonder, did that side also have that? If you don't have a picture of it, you have no idea. Yeah. So uh, you cannot take too many pictures, probably. Maybe yeah, someone could. Maybe. maybe you could. But make sure you get uh, at least get a photograph of all every side, every joint. Just go around. They don't have to be super close-up, professional quality. Just make sure you have a visual representation of everything you're looking at. Yeah. And then you can just uh, mull it over, uh, and, and some of that stuff will just um, will come to you. Or, you know, as you look over the pictures... It's a photo, uh, photography is a great tool to jog your memory about what you saw. So it's not just that the information is in the picture, but it's reminding you, it's recalling within your brain. Oh yeah, I remember seeing that, and then you those details come back. So, right. uh, photography is really really important. Hmm. So uh, yeah, those are the basic tools. That's what I would say. Um, you know, a light and um, tape measure, camera, basic stuff like that. So it's not, none of it is expensive, um, doesn't need to be anything fancy or, or high-end to get the information you need. Um, but it's not just like the gear, it's not just having the tools, but there's this whole other way of interacting with stuff that I had to learn when I went to school uh, to, learn on, to learn antiques, the way that you carry yourself right. so you know like mike when we were working on the jonathan fisher collection or when we go to when we went to the yale uh museum and we were looking at that you know what kind of advice would you give to listeners and how you carry yourself how you make an institution feel comfortable right allowing you to touch their precious artifacts yeah i mean you definitely have to go in with an attitude of respect and uh you know, you are understanding that these objects are valuable, not just, you know, the, the money side of it, monetary value, but historic value. And so obviously you don't want to do anything that would negatively affect that or, mm -hmm. you know, change the, change the history associated with the object. So when you go into an institution like this, uh, it's best to, to just be cautious. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. hang back you you want to um, you know communicate as much as you can with the individuals there whose whose job and life work it is to protect these objects mm -hmm. um, but just demonstrate to them that you respect these objects that you really care about protecting them as much as they do um, uh, you know some there are some pretty basic things I, I had to learn a lot of these different things working on uh, boats and yachts with mm -hmm. you know I'd finish up all the interior varnish and it would be pristine and so you don't walk around with like a metal tape measure hanging off the back of your belt oh goodness <laughs> don't do that uh, you don't you you watch for metal belt buckles and zippers and buttons and you're just conscious of all this stuff because uh one um uh let's say if you if you're not cautious you bump into something you, you know scratch deep gouge in the shellac something like that um you want to just exude calmness and caution yeah i mean and so that also is like i think the most common thing is hanging clothing a jacket you're wearing that is unzipped and the, the zipper's yep. just flapping in the wind you know or whatever or you're even like when your sleeves, if you have long sleeves, if if they're unbuttoned there and they're just hanging, flapping, roll up your sleeves. Yeah. Uh, your keys hanging off your side, your any of that stuff, just know that that institution is uncomfortable. They're watching how you're interacting with the object. And if you're not mindful of that stuff and you're just turning around or you're 
making sudden motions and pointing at stuff and trying to, they're going to go, oh boy, this yeah. person's not sensitive to how fragile this artifact is. Yeah, we need to hover now Yeah, so they're not going to be careful. And actually the most practical thing that I learned um, in that whole th um, way of communicating your respect is when I was in school to learn to uh, restore antique furniture, we were doing a lot of uh, finish conservation and you know um, doing varnish work and stuff like that and at all of our benches we had these varnished samples out and the rule was you had to if you're going to leave your bench you had to put your hands behind your back or in your pocket because the yeah. thing with finishing is people go oh is that is wet that wet and they touch it like oh yeah it, it, it is yeah wet. <laughs> that's great like when you're varnishing a tow rail on a boat and you're just wrapping up and somebody walks up and says, is this wet? Is this wet? Stick their finger in oh, it. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. That's not the way to test it. <laughs> so I applied that to furniture conservation. When I went into a client's house or to a museum, you walk up and the first thing is I put my hands behind my back and I hold my wrist. Nice. And they go, and they say, wow. Okay. This person's not grabby. He, you know, He's not going to walk up and try to... He doesn't feel like, oh, it's fine. I can handle it. They know that I'm respecting their stuff, and I'm not going to touch anything that I'm not uh, given permission yep. to touch. So, and you don't you don't take your Starbucks cup and sit it up on top of the the high boy. No, you, you don't do that. So all that sounds super cautious, but that's because uh, if you're listening to this, you know that this stuff is special, and yep. um, and these people are caretakers for these artifacts that. You know, this is our cultural heritage in material form. And so we want to be communicating to everybody. We think this is really exciting, really special, and we want to do everything we can to be respectful of it. Yeah. So I think that's the, if you can communicate all of that, you'll basically, people will be excited to have you in. They say, wow, this person's so excited and they have this deep interest and they're so respectful and they wanted to show you more and more and more. Yeah. Let's say so. whatever you want to look at, go ahead. Yeah. So it's cool. Um, so once you get into a place and you find a piece you want to look at, uh, what do you look for? How do you observe? How do you take, make observations? Uh, the way that I approach it is I kind of think of it in terms of, um, tiers of perspective so i would start you know 10 feet away so i think of like 10 feet two feet and one foot 10 feet away is uh it's form it's looking at the overall form the consistency if there's anything um, slanted or out of square can you see all that from 10 feet away then you get up two feet away and you're looking for construction details was this pegged mortise and tenon joinery was this uh, you know, how are the pegs, are they misaligned or are they bored at the same place so that they're intersecting at the back or just that kind of stuff. And then this, you know, this one foot vantage point or maybe six inches in some cases where you're looking at all the tiny little tool marks and every little layout line and you're trying to say, wait, what is that? Is that a little, does that tear out or is that writhing or wait a minute? So it's 10 feet, two feet and one foot. Um, and I would start with a notebook and you're just with a, you're writing bullet point observations and you're just saying, you know, this thing and that thing and that thing. You're not writing an essay. You're not going to win any awards for your writing right. here. You're just trying to get it all down because by the time you are done examining every square inch of this piece of furniture, you're going to forget those first observations. Mm. And so right now at this initial stage, you're, you know, you're just looking, you're just standing back, observing, saying, what is this thing? And you get closer and closer incrementally. And that, you know, is revealing more along the way. Yeah. And then, um, you know, part of that observation, what you'll start to see is if there have been any modifications, if there have been, if there's been restoration work done, uh, you know, looking for glue blocks or shadows where glue blocks used to be, places where fasteners used to be. Uh, different hardware, you know, uh, brasses are usually not original, but you're, you're looking for the clues that will point to these changes that happen, you know, when a piece of furniture is hundreds of years old, um, you know, these things happen, there are repairs that need done, and you can just uh, 
start sleuthing around, see what you can find and making note of it. Um, And the lights are super valuable for all that. Yeah. And the thing, I think the primary thing is when you look under the, like you look at the underside or the backside of something, or the, you know, the interior, you're looking for this sort of, um, homogenous is not the right word, but it's almost like this homogenous, even coloration or discoloration over time, this oxid oxidation, so that the, the oxygen has exposed all this wood to, or has deepened the color of the wood over time evenly. Right. If you see something a piece of the wood that doesn't fit that nice, even, gradual sh- shading of oxidation, you should say, huh, why is that one lighter in color or so radically darker in color? Yeah. That's weird. What is that all about? And that's something to look at closer. So color is a dead giveaway. Um, and I know antique dealers, I wouldn't recommend this at all in like, you know, um, museum objects, but I've seen antique dealers um for oxidized pine uh, on the underside, what they have done is if if you bump it with your fingernail, if you scratch it, uh, if it's faked color, it's bright white underneath it. Yeah. But if it's legit old oxidized surface, it's still the same color. Now, that doesn't mean go scratch everything. It's just it, it helps you understand that um, as this stuff oxidizes, this this co- it changes color radically. Pine is very is white super white bright colored until it starts getting aged and then it gets darker and darker and darker and it should all be even so you're looking for that consistency and and discoloration yeah we've talked a lot about how um when we're looking at pieces of furniture how having two sets of eyes can make a big difference yeah. We're, we're just like, whoa, look at this. What do you think of this? And then an observation that one of us has made on one side of the object, we can confer about the other side of the object and we, we can form conclusions a lot faster. It yeah. seems like a, a really good way of um, getting a quick overall view of something and then we can start coming up with ideas or uh, solving the puzzle. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, our, putting our heads together. Yeah two or maybe three if somehow you can make that fit two or three woodworkers looking at a piece of furniture all together <laughs> yeah a lot of stuff will become very quickly apparent and you'll start debating saying no that can't what is this and how does that i mean i remember when we were doing the jonathan fisher research or you know i was for my book i had spent so many hours by myself looking at all these objects and i brought mike in to do a lot of the photography basically like the last um examination of things and photography because once once you get that piece of furniture on that cyclorama backdrop this white backdrop with all the lights and you start opening it up to photograph it a bunch more stuff i never saw became really obvious but i but what i realized was when i had a second person there mike and i were looking at it together and he said well why is this like that and I went, oh, I never noticed that before. Or I said, here's what I'm stumped on. I can't figure this out. And then Mike would start talking about his ideas on it. And we'd go back and forth. And I was like, wow, I'm so glad we had that conversation. I never would have thought to go down that path. Um, so a second pair of eyes is really valuable. Um, and if you can get pictures, if you can't have someone there, get a lot of pictures and send them around to other woodworkers and say, have you ever seen this before? Why would this mark, why would this little X be right here at that place? So um, that kind of thing is super valuable. And it, that is all dependent on that low raking light. you yep. got to move that light all around every side. And that the angle of the light has to be really low to the surface. So if you stand the light and you just face it right at the board in front of you, it's going to show you basically nothing. Yeah. If you lay it down on its, basically put the light sideways on that board and you rake it across the surface, all the texture, all the tool marks are going to be, become so obvious. So you have to get that light in and around and move it until you can see, oh, wow, that thing just popped. That's just, yeah. now it's, you can't miss it. Yeah. That's one of my favorite stories about that highlights the value of raking light was when we were at Sabbath day Lake, the shaker community, um, here in Maine. And we were looking at this, um, it was a, a cupboard basically. Yeah. 
and we uh, this painted cupboard and we got uh, the light raking light across the door and we started looking closer we're like what are those they're like smudges and we looked close and they were um, house cat tracks across the the you know 150 year old paint in the paint depressed when the paint the was paint. wet so when when the door was horizontal on you know sawhorses having been painted the cat jumped up and walked across it <laughs> and no one there had ever seen those marks until we we uh pulled out the light and held it at that low angle and demonstrated yeah and the only reason was because the light was always direct on right and so no one ever saw it yeah that's that just is what unlocks it yeah so one important thing to uh, keep in mind is to not just see a rough surface and go, oh, that was done with hand tools or, oh, that was that was sawn on a pit saw. Right. Right. Um, roughness does not necessarily mean hand tools. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of 20th century, early 20th century factory made furniture is I think it's fair to say it's rough inside uh -huh. it's it's not hand tool rough it's but if if you're not used to seeing pre-industrial furniture you might look at um the inside of 20th century furniture and think that's what we're talking about yeah it's like band sawn lumber that has these vertical kind of rough coarse marks and you'll go oh well that was you know ripped by hand in in you know 13th century england or something <laughs> and um no it it was probably a it's just a bandsaw mill marks. Yeah, well, and bandsaws um, don't provide a consistent feed. That's obviously uh, craftsman powered. It pushes right into the blade. So some of the spacing between the bandsaw marks um, is going to be inconsistent. So you might see that inconsistency in spacing and think, oh, that must have been hand sawed. Not necessarily. Um, so that's important. Typically, they are more regular because you, you know, we've all, I think, put it piece of wood through a bandsaw and as you just push 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 it creates this relatively um, regular increment right. um, but bandsaw marks are often confused with handsaw marks um, but th the thing the real important thing is that those are perfectly perpendicular uh, so if you were sawing by hand it would not stay 90 degrees right uh -huh. it would it would be varying a little bit or i mean you wouldn't typically saw it too much at 90 degrees anyways right but it would uh it would change throughout the length so you're looking for that irregularity uh for for hand tools huh. so but i mean it's it is easy to misinterpret tool marks it yes. just it's totally forgivable it's not something like oh it's so obvious it's not obvious um it's not something that is just you can anyone can look at a rough mark from construction and interpret it properly. So, I don't know. I mean, what would you say is the most? Mike, you wrote an article actually oh, about yeah, a lot yeah, of that. that. Um, and you know, tool marks tell stories was the article talking about um, how to interpret tool marks. And um, so, how would you say? What would you say is some of the most important advice you could give on how to make sure you're properly interpreting? what someone what you're looking at yeah um so i think that probably the most important thing is um having done the operation yourself that you're looking at if you're looking at um joinery and you're trying to figure out what's going on what are these marks here what is this line here um and a lot of um museum curators have this problem where they're trying to interpret the object but they don't have the experience actually building something with the tools that would have been used as soon as you you know cut a set of dovetails with hand tools or you you chop a, a mortise and uh, draw bore you know a tenon you understand a lot of what's going on there and you can see how um, certain details can can arise like oh well why is the top of that mortise that look like it's like crushed or something and if you if you do the operation, you will understand what's going on. So yep. it's really important to use those tools, use you know period hand tools, use old hand tools to do something similar. And after you've cut a bunch of dovetails and done a bunch of, of work planing and um, thicknessing and that sort of thing, you'll start to see the same marks on everything that you're doing. 
that you're seeing on the undersides and the, the, the backs of period furniture. Um, and so they, they can interpret one another. You know, one of the big things that, that uh, Joshua, you were really excited about was to try and learn how to make furniture in the way that you were seeing. And so you're like, okay, so I'm going to have to reproduce these marks. So how do I have to, what do I have to do to do that? Um, and you were finding that that's really kind of the key to learning efficiency because mm-hmm. these, these people who are working in this way uh, were very efficient and quick. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not even just the tool. Right. It's the manner in which that yeah, tool is exactly. used. Exactly. That you, you can vary what the tool mark looks like depending on how you uh, engage that tool to the wood. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even like, you know, I think one of the examples that comes to mind that is, um, I think, often misinterpreted is the difference between four plane marks and ads marks. Because a four plane or jack plane has a heavily cambered ironed iron, it's a rounded iron. And so it's taking a deeper cut. And so you'll see these undulations. And uh, I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with that tool uh, will look at that and say, oh, wow, look at all those ads marks. Mm-hmm. Well, if you've used an ads and you've used a four plane, it would be very hard to make that mistake. Um, but if you haven't, it would be very easy to make that mistake right. because it's very rough looking. Um, and so that kind of that's a, a big picture look at it. But even some of the smaller, minute details until you do it you just don't know or you have to ask a woodworker who has done that operation in that way why is this like that why is the top of the mortise crushed that's so weird yeah that's not weird actually at all (laughs) when you chop a mortise um but but you wouldn't just intuit that yeah and you know uh old furniture has layout lines everywhere and um you might look at that and say, well, why was this line here? Why, why did they put this X mark in the back of the drawer? And then when you go and try and build a, a set of drawers yourself, you'll say, oh, well, I actually, that makes perfect sense. I want to keep these pieces separate. And yeah. as they're laid out, that's where you would put that mark to denote what drawer back goes to what drawer and what position mm-hmm. and all that. Well, I remember even like... Um... I was looking at some drawers that Jonathan Fisher made um, and on the inside, it's a picture of a drawer, the inside of the sides on the lower front corner. Oh, yeah. Does that, does that make sense? So You're I, looking in the drawer and it's the, the drawer face. You look you. at that corner, uh, de- the lower corner. There was a quarter circle drawn. drawn. And so you see this little line across it. I thought, that's weird. It's really consistent. And I saw that on all the drawers, those two sides on the inside, lower corner, front, a little circle. And But then it, I started thinking about it more and thought, that makes so much sense. Because when you have drawer sides out and you have the back and you have all the pieces out and you want to say, okay, I'm going to lay out dovetails. Oh, wait, which is the inside? Which is, oh, wait, hold uh-huh. on a second here. And you get all turned around. It's so much easier because so like with with period work, um, like a, a table rail, it's easy to tell the difference between the face and the inside because one right. side is really rough and the outside yeah, is the not. The side with the bark on it is on the That's inside. That's the inside. <laughs> uh, but in a drawer side, you don't have that because both the inside and the outside, the, it's all regular. And that sucks. Yeah. When everything's regular, it is so hard to build something. You can easily make a mistake and lay out your dovetails backwards. And then you start cutting. You're like, oh, no, this is the outside. So so what you do is you put that little quarter quarter round circle there in the front. And it's just in the front. Because if you put it in the back, you're going to match up the dovetails wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's stuff like that, that you look at that and you think, that's curious. That's strange. Yeah. And then you do it and you go. Dang, that's a really good way to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and with any piece you look at, you're going to find things that are really weird. And you'll say, <laughs> what on earth? And, you know, you'll scratch your head. You may never figure out what is going on there. Um, we were talking about a couple different examples of things that we saw that were real head scratchers for a while. And we, we see some of these, you know, one of these especially, like on most chests and things that we look at. Mm-hmm. But um, you were talking about the the little on the sides of joiner planes. 
we see these little fairly regular v-shaped indentations along yeah. the length well the first time i noticed it was i remember chris schwarz and i were looking at uh some some of fisher's planes and uh tom lee nielsen and deneb and a bunch of other people were there and we were looking at fisher's planes and saw that saw all these little v-shaped indentations all along the side of his joiner plane we all were going back and forth what the heck is that and it looks like a kid went crazy and was just wailing on it and it was just had a little v tool or something it was just chop 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 like the whole thing it was so weird and uh we were trying to figure out what it was and i can't remember who it was but somebody uh, led us on to some 19th century book that was talking about how you sharpen saws. And it, uh, the writer was saying, um, if you don't have a, a saw set, what you can do is you can lay a saw on a block of wood and then with a basically like a, a, a punch or nail something. set yeah. and a hammer, you can you know, drive the tooth, the set down into the wood. And we all were like, oh, of course. Yeah. And He's so using I, his plane I think in the book it actually even said some people do this on the sides of their planes, but that's not proper or whatever, right. you know. Um, and then it dawned on me and I started seeing it more and more on antique joiner planes. People would set their saws on the sides of their joiner planes. Hmm. Probably a yeah. <laughs> sketchy idea. Yeah. Just I mean, whatever. Don't, don't do it on the sole for yeah. sure. I've but. never done that before. <laughs> but all of a sudden this strange mark that is you know, inexplicable. What a weird thing. All of a sudden is totally obvious. Oh, of course, that's what you would do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, the other thing that, that I was saying that we see a lot of are those, um, you know, on chests or like the sides of drawers, sometimes we'll see it. We'll see these little like squiggly things. Mm-hmm. They look like like little coils or little slinkies or something. And indentations. Yeah, indentations into the wood. Sometimes there are several of them that make parallel squiggly lines yeah. that seem to match each other and we've looked and at it's them. and it's typically it's on the underside yeah yeah it's like the bottoms of chests and boxes and yeah and we said what on earth is that and then i forget what it was if we were how we how it, you were the one who said oh i know what this is yeah. well i don't remember why how you came to that realization well I, i'll tell you how so I set a board down on the floor one time okay, and dragged it across yeah, the floor a little right. bit and picked it up and I saw those same marks and I thought, what the heck is that? And I looked down and there were some some stones, some a gravel from my gravel. shoes on the floor. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's what that is. And sure enough, I mean, I actually just did it the other day in the shop here over by my chair. I just stepped on a piece of gravel and it made that same mm-hmm. squiggle indentation. Yeah, so you picture the little the little bit of gravel between, you know, under the board or whatever, and it's dragged across, and it would roll under there and create this little curly cue. If you haven't seen it before, it's a weird, striking thing. You're like, wow, yeah. how did that those happen? squiggle marks? Yeah. And they all are in the same direction. Yeah, they rolled it around on rocks. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's it is fun to to speculate. There are all kinds of uh, things. Um, pieces of furniture where you're like what purpose does this serve what is this here for there are empty you know we talk about notches that don't seem to do anything places where it looks like maybe someone thought about putting a piece of hardware and started uh you know like cutting a a mortise for it or something and Mm -hmm. then moved on and abandoned that idea um like that hanging cupboard i have yeah the hinge uh was going to be cut into one side the, the saw cuts were started on the there's top there's one two three and then the start of the fourth saw and cut. they said well oh, oh shoot no, the hinges on the side. wrong side and they we picture they we picture the guy's wife coming and going no you can't open the door that way because the <laughs> like that's where the the cabinet is he's like well i just cut oh. it what am i oh man so he just left it and painted over it <laughs> i mean that's great um but yeah it's it is so much fun to uh, just speculate and make theories. And, you know, you get enough people, enough woodworkers who have, have seen these kinds of things before. Very often you'll get a, a workable idea. You'll say, yep. I think that's the solution. Yep. Um, but oftentimes, though, you have to just uh, lean back and 
like uh, Peter Follinsby's article in issue two, it was uh, everyone who knows why is dead. Uh, yep. You have to just realize hmm, there are some things that we're just never going to figure out. Sure. Totally. You have to have that um, that humility that says, yeah. huh, I, you know what? I just don't know. Yeah. And you <laughs> don't <weird>. either. <laughs> and you don't either. And I don't know. But yeah, this is the way I work in my shop. And yeah. I, actually, it's funny because Peter was talking about um, a situation in which he was talking with woodworkers and there was speculation going around. And, you know, he said, I don't even remember what the marks mean in my shop. <laughs> I did them three years ago and I don't remember what it was yeah. for. So to try to come up with it now is uh, is futile. Yeah. <laughs> so it's fun to speculate, but you, can, you do have to have humility. Yeah. And, and all these things are really the reason why we do an exam article in every issue um, where we basically do a really thorough uh, photographic documentation of a piece and then yeah. lay it all out there and, and try and pick out some of the details and point them out and say, you know, look at this, check this out. This is interesting. Um, just really to show the, the value of noticing all these different um, uh, variables, these, yeah. these different highlights of a piece that all show the fingerprint of someone you know, some intelligent human being making decisions and acting on them with tools. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you put enough of these together, it really starts to help unlock what the thought process was when that piece of furniture was being made centuries ago. Yeah, I think the thing is, what I would say is, what's most important is attentiveness. Hmm. Pay close attention, take pictures, make notes. If something seems weird, call it weird say yeah. that's strange yeah and file that away because you might who knows maybe in a decade maybe 20 years later who knows you'll go oh my goodness now that that's that, that makes was. so much sense now yeah. um but you don't know you don't know what you're gonna uh, stumble across later but just be attentive look at that stuff and not only uh, not even just when you're looking at you know finished antique furniture but in your shop look at be attentive to the way you're working and what certain things do what kind of marks they leave and that just informs uh your work so that you can unlock this this capacity to learn from those who aren't dead or who are dead rather who aren't around who can't uh -huh. you can't take a class from somebody who's who died 200 years ago right. but if you're attentive you can still learn from them and that's the value of of being uh doing this kind of examination yeah um so uh, if somebody's listening, they, they, they're like, oh man, this sounds great. I would love to go and examine some piece of furniture. Like what are, what are the options? If, if say you only own brand new Ikea furniture in mm -hmm. your house or apartment and you're saying, I want to go and look at some of this stuff. I want to take pictures. I want to do some of the sleuthing myself. Yeah. Um, well, you know, museums are obvious. Uh, you can go to museums. Uh, no matter where you are in the country, there are museums, or in the world, there are uh -huh. museums. And so, uh, you know, we live in New England, so there's a bunch of stuff. There are little house museums all over the place, and a lot of people yeah, live Yeah, the smaller ones are really approachable. Yeah, so there are house museums all over, too. And, um, and what I would say is, you know, go to these museums, even if all you have is a, a, a massive institution and no little house museums, go there and see what you can see don't cross that little velvet rope <laughs> but get down on one knee the alarm will sound and, and look try to see what you can see and be respectful and keep distance but try to see what you can um so that would be one way but that's pretty limited you if you can try to get closer to these objects that's going to help you so uh antique stores are yeah great they're yeah. really helpful uh to be able to do that yeah i don't know how much time i've spent just like wandering around the, the few local stores um and you you know when when you go in there fairly regularly you get to know some of the the pieces that have been sitting there for a while pull the drawer out snap a photo of of some dovetails and mm -hmm. and flip it over and look at the back and and you can really start to uh start to ponder some of this stuff just with these pieces that are you know sitting there for sale and who knows eventually you might just decide to to buy that one yeah i've been looking at a chair for about a year and a half and mike just bought it so. <laughs> i did that's right <laughs> i went in and said oh i like that one uh 
Yeah. And uh, it's great because now I can I can gloat every time I go and sit on it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but I mean, I have also found with these house museums, they're so great because um, most of them are small and volunteer run. And that means several things. That means they're excited when people have enthusiasm about their collection. It typically also means that they don't have specialist knowledge about the artifacts. They have general knowledge. So if you are a woodworker who has cut joinery before, most house museums, you have something that they would be interested to learn about. So, um, you know, don't go walk in and saying, you you know, everything and they don't, that's not going to put them in a good mood. But if you show enthusiasm, they're going to want to show you more and more stuff. Yeah. If you're respectful, ask good informed questions, tell them what you are interested in in particular and why, uh, I have found almost every time they go, Oh really? Well, tell me about this. Yeah. They just, they, I've been asked, what do you think yeah, about and this? Th- and they'll, they'll come up. I mean, they'll present all the mysteries in their minds about things and, if you can start providing some of the answers just because you're a woodworker, uh, that's going to be a great relationship. Just don't be a know-it-all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Docents at museums have a lot of stories about people who inform them. Right, yes. <laughs> so, for better or for worse. For better or for worse, yeah. yeah. Um, but frankly, you know, if you're, if you're a woodworker and you're respectful, they're going to be very uh, excited to talk with you because they might just say, could you look at something else? I just don't know what to make of this. Yeah. Um, and that is, it's a mutually beneficial relationship then. They're getting information that they didn't have before, and they're giving you uh, a view into something that you never would have had access to. So mm. um, that was actually exactly how um, my connection with the Jonathan Fisher House happened, was just a, an informal tour, conversation started, and you know this wow. more tight... Uh, relationship started to develop and they said here why don't you spend some time in our archives and read through the journals and some of that stuff it's amazing Um, people who are caretakers for um, artifacts they care deeply they would not be volunteering their time to take to oversee those things to share them with the public if they didn't care and weren't excited so if you're excited they're excited to get you involved so take advantage of that for sure yeah um yeah i have i have never looked at a piece of antique furniture that i hadn't learned something from or found some amazing mystery or just something to get excited about um i feel like every time we do you know an exam in here where we spend way more time than we should probably (laughs) just pouring over the details of these things and like scratching our heads and looking at stuff and yeah it's so much fun. Yeah, I mean, handmade things are all about exceptions. Yeah. You can have rules, but they all are exceptional. They all have something unique and different. And uh, that's what's so exciting about it. It's like this uh, this mystery. If, yeah. if you look close enough, you will be happy to find that there are unanswered uh, things. Yeah. Uh, because that's one of the things when people, um, you know, when we talk about the way they did it right that actually doesn't really it doesn't exist. exist the way they did it who's they i mean they all all this stuff was made so uniquely and differently and that's what's so exciting about it hmm. so being attentive is is sort of the the way to unlock that yeah for sure um so if if any of you have felt inspired to go um take a look at a piece or if you're looking more closely at your own dining room table or you know the chair you happen to be sitting in um, if you have any questions or any thoughts or anything, send them our way. Yeah. Um, any photos that you take? That... Yeah, send, send us an email with pictures. Yeah. Um, we would, you know, we love mysteries and, yep. and it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a good thing to talk about uh, and discuss and uh, who knows uh, where that can lead. So. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a worthwhile thing to spend your time doing. If you're a woodworker, you should be studying the objects that woodworkers have made <laughs> yeah and uh it's it's a blast it's a journey to always uh discover some new facet of of the world yeah and it will inform the way you do woodworking too uh so thank you for listening to the mortison tenon podcast if you haven't already you can subscribe at itunes or wherever you get your podcasts 
Uh, if you have any comments or questions, just leave them below. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.